Grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verse 1 through 11. John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the water jugs. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to everyone, or said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, when the poor wine, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our desire is to see you, to hear from you, to receive correction from you, comfort from you. Father, do that which you know needs to be done in our lives, Lord. Just don't leave us alone. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your gospel. Amen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We now come to the sixth day in the new creation theme that John has created in this first chapter of his book. In the Genesis account of creation, the sixth day was a very busy day. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Unfortunately, everything that God made did not remain very good. The original union that God created with man was rendered void through the willful sin of Adam, thereby destroying that which had been very good. Here, on this sixth day, we find Jesus, his disciples, and his mother at a wedding. Weddings in the first century Near East were a lot different than the weddings that we're used to seeing. The actual contract for marriage could have been entered into years previously, many years previously, usually by the parents of the bride and groom. This was called an arranged marriage and they seem to have worked pretty well. The couple, who would have been considered married throughout that time, they would have been considered married throughout that time, but until the wedding ceremony actually happened, until the marriage was consummated, it was just a legal contract. Weddings in that century were not the bride's day. They weren't even for the couple. It was a family celebration, perhaps in some instances, a town celebration. Everything about the lives of these people was centered on community. There wasn't the narcissistic agenda that focuses on me that we have. Family fortunes would be spent on weddings. It was a way of giving back to the community, a way to show thankfulness to God for his provisions and their thankfulness to the people who had poured into the lives of the couple that were being married. We're never told why Jesus and his disciples were at the wedding, but it was common practice to invite local rabbis to weddings as honored guests. But that his mother was there and that she took an active part in finding a solution to running out of wine indicates that they probably were related to the groom in some way. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's unfortunate that we have allowed our man-made traditions to worm their way into the Word of God, but we have. This is one of those places that it can be best seen. In our post-modern, post-prohibition era, there are many folks who try to explain away the fact that Jesus was at a wedding where there was alcohol being served. And the the first sign, or the first of his signs that he did was to turn water into wine. A lot of wine. They'll say, sure, he may have been wine, but their wine contained far less alcohol content than ours does today. Or they'll say, I have studied the original Greek, and the word that is translated as wine should be translated as fruit of the vine, grape juice, not wine. Or, they'll say, they had to drink wine in their time because water was unfit to drink. I guess they never read the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Let's just settle this here and now. Drinking alcohol is not the unforgivable sin. It isn't even a sin. But casting dispersion and judgment on a brother because you find a beer in the refrigerator is sin. Alcohol, 
like all other good things given to us from the Lord, such as money, sex, and even food, can and very often get perverted and become sin. But alcohol in and of itself isn't sinful. Matter of fact, God demanded that it be used as part of the offering brought to him as found in Exodus 29.40, where he says that a fourth part of a hen of wine is actually supposed to be brought to him for a drink offering. Wine or alcohol is also shown to be a blessing from God in, to man in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Judging anyone by the standard that they can't be a true Christian a real disciple because they drink alcohol is adding to the Word of God and proving that your heart is that of a Pharisee. But having said that, we should be careful in the use of alcohol. While the Bible speaks favorably concerning wine as being a blessing from God, it also condemns drunkenness over 70 times in the Bible. Paul in Ephesians 5 said this, Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And alcoholism is not a disease. If it is, then it's the only disease that you can catch by twisting off a, a top or popping the top off of a can. But sin is a disease. We are infected by it, even after regeneration. Because of this, knowing yourself is imperative in our life with Christ. If you are prone to any kind of obsession or addiction, then you should probably stay away from alcohol. This is just wisdom. But let's also be careful not to call sin that which the Bible doesn't call sin. Did you notice that the name of the mother of Jesus is not mentioned in this story? The compelling reason for this is that she and the disciples were merely bit actors in this production. Jesus is the star, and everything that happens in this story is for him, by him, and even through him. Verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The Apostle John refers to Mary as a mother of Jesus four times in these verses, but he never calls her Mary. And when Jesus speaks to his mother, he calls her woman. In the Greek, that word is gune, which means woman. He uses the same word when he speaks to her in chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. Then he's nailed to the cross. Moments from re-entering eternity. It's then that he looked at his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and he said to his mother, Woman, 
Behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Jesus was not deriding his mother by calling her woman. In fact, there seemed to be a real sweetness in the relationship between Jesus and his mother. The term gune means woman, but it's a term of respect, as in calling a woman ma'am. But why didn't he refer to her as mother? There is a compelling reason that Jesus called her gune and not mother. Jesus loved his earthly mother, but he loved his heavenly father more. A truth that applies not only to him, but all that belong to him. Matthew 10:37, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This would make sense as to why he would address her as woman instead of mother. Because as his mother, he would have, had, he would have needed to be subject to her as evidenced by the fifth commandment. But he had a higher calling, a heavenly father, that he loved more than he loved everything else combined. And it was his will that Jesus came to do. He was whom Jesus would obey above and beyond all others. He follows up woman with this. What does this have to do with me? In the original text, the literal translation reads, what to me and to you? This is a rigid Jewish idiom that is used to dissent one person's agreement with another, or in plain English, just a plain disagree with them. In Scripture, it can be seen as very minor, as in 2 Samuel 16.10, when King David was told by the captain of his guard that he should kill Shimei for cursing him as they fled Jerusalem. But the king replied, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses me because Yahweh told him, Curse David, who can ask, Why did you do this? It goes from there all the way to the open hostility as found in 2 Kings 3.13, when Elisha was addressing the evil king Jehoshaphat. Elisha, however, said to the king of Israel, What have we to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and of your mother. What Jesus is doing first by calling his mother woman, and then by using this idiom, is separating himself from the temporal and to the eternal work of the kingdom. And even tells her the reason for responding this way. His hour has not yet come. There are three other times that he uses this term, his hour, in, as referenced in the book of John. And from them, we can determine that Jesus knew when his hour actually did come. John 7.30 says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but, they, uh, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. This was still early in his ministry, and while the religious leaders had already begun to conspire against him, they were not allowed to hinder him in any way. And then John chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these men came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, 
the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now his hour has come. But what has changed? What has happened that made Jesus say that his hour has come? The Gentiles have been given the heart to come to him. The church, which has always been made up of people from all tribes, all tongues, and all nations, is now being manifested. This is the sign that the hour for the Christ has come. But what is that term, my hour? What is that supposed to mean? Well, lucky for us, we aren't left to guess. John chapter 12, verses 24 through 28. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, or it means only a seed, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be as well. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus knew that he was destined for the cross. Not in a bad way, not in an inevitable way, and certainly not in a way that we view our own death. His hour is the shining moment of all history. It is the triumphant fulfilling of the promise given in Genesis 3. It is the ultimate demonstration that God is truly holy. Holy, holy. But having said all this, Mary wasn't deterred. She was confident in the Messiah, which she had come to know, not as her son, but as her Lord. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. These are the last recorded words of Mary. And boy, are they ever really good ones. Do whatever he tells you. And verse 6 sets up that whatever he tells you to do sequence. Mary knew that although she was coming at the problem of not having enough wine from a different angle than Jesus, she still trusted that whatever he did would be the right thing to do. Like I said, Mary was likely related to the groom in some form or fashion, which is why she got involved in the first place. And in that culture, running out of wine in the midst of a celebration wasn't just an embarrassment or stain on the family reputation. It could lead to legal retribution coming, not only from the bride's family, but also from the guests themselves. That's how serious they took hospitality. But for Jesus, it's an opportunity to reveal to his disciples the true nature of who he was. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Not only was hospitality a serious affair, so was the strict adherence to the Jewish laws and customs of the day. Adherence to these laws and customs were part of the responsibility of the master of the feast. It was up to the host to provide the clean water for all the guests to religiously purify themselves by pouring water over their hands and feet. But the master of the feast made sure that everything was there. And clay pots wouldn't do for this since they weren't considered holy or clean. Only pots hewn from solid rock would do. And this must have been some wedding since they had gone through over 120 gallons of water being splashed over the guests as they entered the banquet. And it was these ceremonial set-apart jars that Jesus directs his, the servant's attention to. And let's remember in this that there had been plenty of empty wine jugs and wine skins laying around that could have been filled. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. The task of filling these pots couldn't have been an easy one. And we aren't told how they filled them, by dipping them into a cistern or by drawing water from a well and then pouring it into them. In any case, it would have taken some work for these servants to perform this task. All the while, they had to have been wondering what in the world had this to do with the problem of running out of wine? No matter, they didn't cut corners in obeying the Lord. They filled the pots to the brim, to the point of overflowing. Nothing more could have been added to them. In verse 8, And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. They had obeyed this rabbi. They filled these stone pots with water, and Jesus now directs them to do the unthinkable. Take a glass, dip it in there, and give it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast wasn't the bridegroom. He wasn't responsible for the catering, not responsible for making sure that there was enough food or wine for the guests. His job was to make sure that all the guests were served, that the feast went off without a hitch, that all social and religious protocols were kept. <clears throat> he would have been the guy who would have sounded the alarm if the wine ran out or if something was amiss. And it was to this guy that Jesus directs the servants to take water to. We know that the water is no longer water, that it is now, in fact, wine, but the servant didn't. He knew what he had filled that pot with. He knew where the water that he filled that pot with came from, and he knew that there was no wine there. It was just water. And he also knew that once the master of the feast took one sip of that water, which he would have been expecting to be wine, when that happened, the wheels were going to come off the wagon. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water that now became wine and did not know where it came from, 
Though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. The point of no return has come. The servant has dipped the cup into the water and has dutifully walked over to the master of feast with it. Jesus, along with his disciples, has been watching all of these events unfold. But it was only Jesus who had any idea what was about to happen. The disciples probably would have been trying to find the closest exit because this party was about to get out of hand. People were about to become very hostile very fast when they found out that there was no more wine. And there was not one doubt in their mind that as soon as the master of feast was going to demand to know who had directed the servant to bring him water. And once that happened, they were going to be implicated as well. But a miracle has happened. One that only those that were part of the behind-the-scenes actions could have known. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, yum. It's now that he calls the bridegroom. We're never told that the bridegroom knew of the pending disaster. He probably did, and like the disciples, was probably looking to find the closest escape route. But too late. He had been summoned by the master of the feast. The gig was up. The party was over. It was time to pay the piper. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people had drunk freely, then the poor wine. At this point, the bridegroom was probably thinking, and that's run out. But the master of the feast goes on, but you have kept the good wine until now. Did you notice who received credit for the quality of the water that is now wine? The bridegroom. Did he know where this wine came from? Maybe not. Probably not. Neither did the master of the feast, but the servant did, and so did the disciples. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want to address the last line of this verse first simply because it addresses not only the six men that were with Christ on that day, but every Christian throughout redemptive history. Our walk with the Lord is just that. It's a walk. None of us are saved with perfect knowledge, with perfect love or understanding of the Lord. In fact, the longer that we walk with the Lord, the more that we finally understand that we don't really understand. Where we once thought that we were a sinner because of something that we did, we now understand that we're a sinner because of who we are. This was the same with the disciples. We are told in our verse that because they were allowed to be part of this miracle, to witness it and partake in it physically, they believed in him. But not really. Christian, saint, if you think that you've arrived, if you think that you have perfect knowledge, then you're sadly mistaken. If you think that you know the Lord, 
you're wrong. We know that John wrote this gospel for a specific reason. John 20, 31. But these have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But there is a difference between believing and knowing. Luke 18. When he took the twelve aside, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that was said. And we have Mark 9, 31 and 32. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. And after his burial, the women apparently didn't go to the tomb to find a risen Savior. For they were taking spices in order to anoint the body of Jesus. And when they got there, they thought the body had been taken away. And then when the disciples came to, to see the missing body, we have John chapter 20, which says, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. We may believe that Jesus is Lord unto salvation. Praise God for that. But we will for the rest of eternity, be learning about who this God is that saved us from our self-imposed eternal judgment. That, being, that learning begins here, now, and then continues for the rest of our lives. This is part of what makes being a Christian so exciting. Christianity is not a dead religion. It's not something that we do. It's a relationship with a God that is so completely other than us that as we walk with him, we will be just as amazed, just as challenged, and just as enamored with him as the disciples were. John uses the term signs throughout his gospel to describe the miracles of Jesus. He chose this word for the same reason that he chose to call Jesus the word in chapter 1, verse 1. Both words have deeply biblical meaning. And just like word, signs has deeply non-biblical meanings as well. In classical Greek, the term sign referred to a distinguishing mark or a token or a signal. In the Old Testament, the sign was linked directly to God's creative activity, such as in Genesis 1.14. God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of, of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. In prophetic activity, it's pointed to prophecy, but it was itself even part of that prophecy. Isaiah 8.18 Behold, I and the children whom the Yahweh has given me 
are for signs and for wonders in Israel, for Yahweh of hosts, which dwells on Mount Zion. There are six signs that John mentions in his gospel. And just as with his use of the six days of creation theme that he created in the first chapter of his book, they aren't fulfilled at the beginning of the book. They aren't completed within the body of the book. They will be fulfilled in that final hour, though. The final scene is completed at the end of the book. That hour, that day, when the work of the new creation is completed in the rest that comes from the propitiation of the Son of Man on the cross. And everything about those six stone water pots speaks of Judaism and the Old Covenant. What they were made of, what they were filled with, and what they were used for all harken back to the Old Covenant, to the law given man by God, the law that we could never keep. There was value in them, but their value was now being replaced with something of much greater value. The signs that they represented were shadows of the truth that was being fulfilled in the one that they pointed to. The church in the Old Testament needed to be ceremonially cleansed. There was a need for ceremonial sin offerings. The stain of sin needed to be dealt with, but these ceremonial things could only ceremonially remove that stain. The church in the new creation no longer needs to be ceremonially washed. There is no longer a need for stone water jugs to hold pure, clean water to ceremonially wash our hands and feet. We're told in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And we no longer need to bring a sacrificial animal with us when we come to worship God. For we're told in Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. We have been washed. We have been cleansed. Isaiah 1.18, God said, Come, now let us reason together. Though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. No amount of ceremonial water could do this. No amount of sin offerings could do this. Only God could do this. It's also worth mentioning that all this was happening on the third day. It isn't with, without coincidence that John begins the first sign with the phrase, on the third day. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And on that day, there was an unnamed bride and groom. And on that day, they were washed ceremonially in recognition that they were sinners and needed to be cleansed. 
Later, some of these same people would once again find themselves in Galilee, and there again they would be told of a third day. Matthew 17, we read, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus did not die in order that we might be saved. He did not die for the opportunity of people to be washed white as snow. And he did not shed his blood and die on the cross at Calvary to set our records at zero with God. He died and rose again to purchase a people. Revelation 5.9 And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And more specifically, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. His people, His church, has no need of any further cleansing. It, we, have been washed whiter than snow. The blood of Christ does not set our record at zero with God allowing us now to make our own way. If that were the case, the gospel would not be good news. But listen to how Paul described the events that happened on that third day. He said, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The first sign that John gives us in his gospel, in this passage of scripture, is full of references pointing us to the final sign in his gospel. And in this sign, we're constantly being pointed to that final sign. John told this parable, I'm sorry, Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 5. He said, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. 
If he does, the noon wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. In light of the events that happened on this wedding, on this third day, we can clearly see the meaning of this parable. We know that the new wine is both better than the old and that it is placed in new wineskins. The wine in and of itself, while good, even better than good, is of no value in an old wineskin. That's why Jesus ended this parable with a very odd sentence. He says, No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, The old is good. This is why there can be false prophets in the church. Why there can be false converts. Why Judas could walk with Christ for three years and still not be saved. He knew the new wine, understood the new wine, even participated in the new wine, but he had never been given a palate for the new wine, which is why he continued to go back to the old wine. He had never been given a new wineskin into which to contain that new and better wine. There's one more thing that this wedding in Cana on the third day points to. In this wedding, the name of the bride is never mentioned. The name of the groom, the master of the festival, or the mother of Jesus, none are ever given. This wedding was pointing to the real wedding that was going to happen on the third day. Revelation 19 tells us, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Have you been invited to this wedding? Have you been given the right to become the bride of Christ? Do you see this groom is wonderful? Is your heart knit to him, drawn to him? Can you say like Peter, Lord, where else are we to go? For you alone have the words of life. There is what is called a parable given to us in the 22nd chapter of Matthew. It goes like this. Once again, Jesus spoke to the, this parable, or spoke to them in parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to call those who had invited to the banquet, but they refused to come. And again, he sent other servants and said, Tell those that have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. 
But they paid no attention and went away, one to his field and another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the crossroads and invite to the banquet all or as many as you can find. So the servants went into the streets and gathered everyone they could find, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he spotted a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But the man was speechless. Then the king told the servants, tie him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing.